This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We do our best here at KDVS to um, bring you programming 52 weeks out of the year. This is a little bit difficult at times, however, during the interim period. When students are absent, KDVS is and always has been a student-run radio station. And due to some complications that are sort of inherent to the interim period, we unfortunately were not aired a couple weeks back, which we assume broke the hearts of listeners everywhere. But fortunately today we're going to bring you that wonderful interview with Jefferson Morley about his book, The Ghost, subtitled The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton. His name is sometimes pronounced Jesus by many, but the super spy was in fact half Mexican and was given his middle name by his mother. Let's face it, these are the kind of facts you're not going to get on C-SPAN. Jefferson Morley has been doing a book tour around the country the last few months. We're happy to say that he has been getting the word out about this book and and what this book represents. Happily, he gave us about 45 minutes of his time a few weeks back. Therefore, we will be going to the interview halfway through this first segment and run it through the entirety of the rest of the show. What I think I will therefore do for the next dozen minutes or so is just pull some items out of the miscellaneous grab bag file. I want to start out with a follow-up from last week's program about the Christmas tree. We uh, gave you some background about that custom of decorating trees, which, oddly enough, goes back to pagan rituals, as many Christian and other religious ceremonies do. But one question we did not answer for you last week was, just what is that Christmas tree smell? We will extract our answers from the letters section of News Scientist magazine. Noted a David Muir from Edinburgh in Scotland in the UK, that Christmas tree smell is the scent of coniferous evolution. Over millions of years, these trees have equipped themselves with a cocktail of chemical weaponry, including substances that act as fungicides and bactericides, and those that deter herbivorous pests, both large and small. He says the chemical combination varies between tree species, but generally consists of a mix of aromatics, including terpenes such as alpha and beta pinel, limonene and camphene, and also esters, for those of you with an organic chemistry background, such as boronyl acetate. By happy coincidence, he noted, we tend to find these combined scents appealing, so much so that they are added to perfumes and commercial air fresheners. He went on to note that if you have an artificial tree, you will smell a different kind of ester, probably a phthalate or such like used to make the plastic fronds softer and more flexible. Yuck. But Mr. Muir did note that if you soak a few tree decorations in pine-scented disinfectant, you can bring a conifer fragrance to your holiday season. And if any of you out there have a habit of dipping your festive decorations in pine saw before hanging them, drop us a line and let us know how that works out. You can do so by reaching us out to us at info at radioparallax.com. And playing off that same original item about the Christmas tree being imported to America by German immigrants, we have this rather shaky segue. 
which frankly is about as miscellaneous an item as any we ever air on this program. But here's the story. A German man who forgot where he parked his car has been reunited with the vehicle 20 years later. The unnamed driver reported his Volkswagen missing back in 1997, assuming that it had been stolen. But when police recently notified the man his vehicle had been found in a Frankfurt garage now scheduled for demolition, the 76-year-old man realized he'd simply forgotten where he parked it. German police say the man chose not to reclaim the rusting VW, which, quote, can no longer be driven and will be sent to the scrap heap, unquote. We have to admit, although we are somewhat cynical about some of the apps currently out there on the market, we have to admit there are some out there that would have saved this man from going 20 years without his VW. As far as uh, some tech items go that we can be critical of, and we'd feel deprived if we couldn't find something, there's this. The value of a single Bitcoin recently topped $17,000, and that's David, it's a few weeks old. I don't know where it is today. I do know that January a year ago, it was trading at about $800. Meetings to the New York Times, it's a bull market with few precedents in recent investing history. And most people are now buying the Bitcoin with the belief that it will only increase in popularity and desirability. These gains have many people, even Bitcoin believers, anticipating a big crash. Mitchell Hitzlack in the Los Angeles Times said, If you ask me, Bitcoin is still a dumb investment. In fact, dumber than ever. Its recent rise has outpaced almost all the great bubbles of the past, from the 1990s dot-com bubble to the 1980s boom-bust in Japanese stocks, and even the 1720 crash of the South Sea Corporation. The only investment craze that's outpaced Bitcoin so far is thought to be the Dutch tulip mania of the 1630s. Anyway, we'll see where all this leads. We do want to note that according to businessinsider.com, the Winklevoss twins, who are best known as the former Harvard students who accused Mark Zuckerberg of stealing the idea for Facebook, invested $11 million in Bitcoin four years ago, and that today is worth more than $1 billion. Is that reassuring? Eh, Probably not. Speaking of dubious investments, it should be noted that Jesus, who was... Once a humble carpenter is suddenly the art world's richest trophy. Last month, following some tense bidding during an auction at Christie's in New York City, a small painting of Christianity's central figure sold for, what do you guess? 10 million? 30 million? 100 million? Now you're way off. It sold for 450 million dollars, making it by far the most expensive work of art ever sold. It is titled Salvador Mundi. It was created circa 1500. It is one of only about 20 paintings in the world credited to Leonardo da Vinci, and there are no others in private hands. However, the buyer, who was first identified as an obscure Saudi prince, then the Saudi crown prince, then Abu Dhabi's Ministry of Culture, may want to scrutinize the purchase closely before that city's branch of the Louvre Museum puts it on display. Not all experts accept that Salvador Mundi is a genuine Leonardo, given that the portrait is more primitive than his previously known works. Back in 1958, it was sold for, what do you guess, Uh, $125. As recently as 12 years ago, it was attributed to one of Leonardo's students. And uh, while we admit we may not know on this program a great deal about marketing, 
We think we can recognize some world-class marketing when we see it. And somebody has done something here with Salvador Mundi to take it from $125 to $450 million. We may have to put Mr. McMillan on the case of investigating this because he does have a certain talent for painting. Although the rumor that it was he and not that unidentified Spanish woman who touched up the figure of Christ in that church over in Europe, well, we're certain that's false. You remember that story, don't you? Yes, I do. Well, by God, I think it's time we did some follow-up on that one, but not today. And in other news peripherally related to Christianity, we have this. Jerusha Armfeld, who is Billy Graham's granddaughter, has excoriated evangelical Christians for their support of Donald Trump. She says the movement has abandoned its principles for political gain. Ms. Armfeld recently told CNN's Pamela Brown the term evangelical started to really represent actually a branch of Christians that seemed to be a little more conservative and a little bit more hypocritical, a little bit more willing to compromise on the personal morals of a candidate in lieu of what politically they could gain for their party. When Brown asked Armfield about her uncle Franklin Graham's recent tweet heaping praise upon Trump, the evangelist's granddaughter and wife of a pastor in South Carolina says she thinks he was referring to the president wanting to bring back Merry Christmas. She also suggested that the war on Christmas that Trump has quote-unquote won is a non-issue. Armfeld said, I haven't seen Merry Christmas really being attacked. I've been told Merry Christmas by all sorts of walks of lives and all sorts of cultures just this year. Armfeld furthermore said Trump has not shown himself to be a Christian and has exhibited qualities that are the opposite of Christ-like. She said, my Jesus that I follow was really somebody who fought for the outliers. And I think that Trump has actually done the opposite in kind of ostracizing them. There you go. And speaking of toxic snakes, and how's that for a segue? Uh, No, I did say toxic snakes, not talking snakes, like in the Garden of Eden. A recent study by Akira Mori of Kyoto University, Japan, and Gordon Burkhart at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville examined two snake populations. The backstory on these snakes, which are called Japanese tiger keelback snakes, is that they eat toxic toads and store the toxins of those toads in nuchal glands on their necks. When threatened, the snake arches its neck, displaying the nuchal glands, and if a predator bites the snake's neck, it will get a jet of toxic fluid. By contrast, snakes from toad-free islands flee when attacked. So these researchers just decided to see what would happen if you took snakes from toad-free and toad-rich islands and fed them different diets, i.e. toxic toads or not. Turns out if you feed a snake from a toad-free island the toads, they will respond to threats with nuchal gland displays rather than fleeing. The researchers say this is the only example in terrestrial vertebrates where animals act as if they are aware of when they are toxic and when they are not. And so far, Radio Parallax is unaware of any efforts to make members of Congress more aware of when they are and when they are not toxic. And finally, before we turn to some serious political matters, we have in our hands what is alleged to be from the James Brown estate, James Brown's to-do list. Radio Parallax has been unable to verify that this is indeed in the handwriting of James Brown, but we are accepting it as authentic. So once again, we have here James Brown's to-do list. Number one, 
get up. Number two, get on up. Number three, get up and do my thing. Number four, get up off of that thing. Again, James Brown's to-do list, item number five, get on a good foot. Number six, get Papa a brand new bag. Number seven, give it up and turn it loose. Number eight, make it funky. Number nine, don't take no mess. And item number ten on James Brown's to-do list, stay on the scene. Get up, get on up, get up, get on up, stay on the scene. Get on up, like a sex machine. Get on up, get up, get on up, get up, get on up, stay on the scene. Get on up, like a sex machine. Get on up, get up, get on up, stay on the scene. Get on up, like a sex machine. All right, let's get serious. Our guest today, author Jefferson Morley, began writing about James Angleton of the CIA in 2015. Angleton, you should know, had a surprisingly large role to play in many secret actions that took place during the Cold War, which resonates still. From its earliest days, the Central Intelligence Agency was a powerful force directing clandestine operations around the world. James Angleton would, from 1947 till his forced retirement in 1974, wield enormous influence within the agency. Given that Angleton operated in a world of tightly held secrets, any attempted biography will have more than the usual number of problems accessing data. Luckily for all of us, Jefferson Morley applied his skills as an investigative journalist to the task, using archival material, released secret documents, and interviews with those who knew him. Mr. Morley's worked in Washington for 30 years, 15 of which were spent at the Washington Post. He has written about intelligence, military, and political subjects for The Intercept, Salon, The Atlantic, and others. His previous book, titled Our Man in Mexico, concerned Winston Scott, the CIA's station chief in Mexico City. This is a book which we highly recommend to you. But our subject volume today is the even more provocative, The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Angleton. National Book Award winner Tim Weiner had this to say about it. The best book ever written about the strangest CIA chief who ever lived. No screenwriter or novelist could conjure a character like Angleton. But Morley's stellar reporting and superb writing animate every page of this work. It's essential history and highly entertaining biography. Given that I had a copy shipped to me the day it was available, I can happily second Mr. Weiner's view of it, and I'm delighted to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Jefferson Morley. Thanks for having me, Doug. James Angleton showed up in your book about Wynne Scott as a rather mysterious figure manipulating the flow of information going to and coming from Mexico City in 1963. Did that episode jumpstart an interest in writing about Mr. Angleton? Yeah, it did. James Angleton and Wynne Scott were the same generation of the CIA, guys who came into intelligence work via the Office of Strategic Services during World War II, became enthralled with intelligence work and joined the CIA when it opened in 1947 and then served in the CIA for 25 years. So the careers of these two men were intertwined, and indeed for a lot of that time, Angleton and Scott were friends. So I knew a lot about Angleton after I had finished the book. The thing that I didn't quite realize was how much more had come into the public record since I wrote Our Man in Mexico in the early 2000s. When I got the contract for the Angleton book in, in, in 2015, I realized there was this huge body of material about things that had really not been written about by Angleton's other biographers, specifically 
Angleton's role in the JFK assassination story, but other things as well. So by the time I got around to writing this book, there was lots of material that had not really been used by other authors. So there was lots of good stories to tell, and The Ghost is the result, a compilation of those good stories. Well, back in 1952, Dwight Eisenhower became president. He appointed Alan Dulles as head of the CIA, who who, uh, Angleton knew from his OSS days. Angleton convinces Dulles personally to give him some extraordinary access to materials as a head of counterintelligence. Uh, Can you outline what a remarkable niche Angleton carved out for himself, which you've kind of described as a CIA within the CIA? In the early 1950s, Angleton was a certainly a highly regarded officer, and he had good relationships with Alan Dulles, who he had known. But he was not, by any means, first among equals at the CIA. But in 1954, he had the idea that CIA operations were insecure, that the KGB was much more efficient at infiltrating the CIA and U.S. institutions than people had appreciated. And he said the CIA, what this agency needed was a counterintelligence staff to ferret out threats to internal CIA security. The CIA didn't have any centralized counterintelligence function. They had counterintelligence officers working on specific operations, but nobody overseeing the whole area of counterintelligence. So Angleton created this job, thought it up, and persuaded Dulles to do it. And so that became his platform for amassing a great deal of power. The counterintelligence staff was created in 1954. It had basically, in Angleton's original conception, about four offices within it. So it started as a relatively small operation. By 1958-59, the counterintelligence staff had 200 people working for it, all under Angleton's control. Half of those were officers and agents, half of those were clerical people. But this was the the heart of Angleton's operation, which he used from 54 to 74 to amass a great deal of power in all sorts of areas, like you said, that went far beyond counterintelligence. So he really used this job that he thought of to fill his own intelligence ambitions. It's been noted that we live in something of a surveillance state these days, the revelations about the NSA and other things. Back in the 50s, Angleton allied himself with J. Edgar Hoover to sort of forge a relationship between the CIA and FBI to basically spy on Americans. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this is one of the interesting stories that was in the public record but had not been appreciated. In 1958, J. Edgar Hoover wanted to expand what he called the COINTELPRO program. Uh, And COINTELPRO was a counterintelligence program which had been used by the FBI to attack, discredit perceived enemies of America. And the program had been created during World War II to take on pro-German organizations in the United States. Hoover revived this in the late 1950s to go after communists in the United States. Um, And one thing that he wanted to do was he wanted to open up the mail of communists, but he was uncertain about how to go about doing this. So started making inquiries. And when he did, Angleton got wind of this. Angleton was the CIA's liaison to the FBI. And Angleton approached him and said, by the way, we're already opening people's mail. (laughs) And that was a program that Angleton had, had created not long after he created the counterintelligence staff called Lingual. And Lingual was a program to open up all the foreign mail of selected people. So this was mail 
from the United States to overseas or from overseas into the United States. And Angleton created the capacity to open letters. Again, like the counterintelligence staff, grows very rapidly. When Angleton first gets control of the program in 55, they're opening 100 letters a year. Within five years, they're opening 10,000 letters a year. So Angleton took this thing to scale, as he so often did, and that became the basis for Hoover's expansion of the COINTELPRO program. Hoover was very concerned about this, and one of his aides said, you know, they thought all hell was going to break loose because, wow, the CIA was spying on Americans, and the CIA was poaching on FBI turf. Right. Well, Angleton cleverly put the thing together, and Hoover, always hungry for more secrets, welcomed Angleton's gift of, the, of intelligence. So Angleton created a program called Hunter, and what Hunter was was fed all of the lingual letters, any letters that, that the FBI wanted were funneled to them. So the FBI could then levy their requirements on Angleton's intelligence collection. And so COINTELPRO grew in part because it was fed by Angleton's intelligence. COINTELPRO was always a joint program of those two agencies. It was not just a Hoover specialty. It was a Hoover-Angleton program. And so that's new. When we, when we talk about COINTELPRO, we always talk about the FBI. And it's true that their focus was domestic intelligence agencies, but they were always fed with CIA intelligence as well. So you can't take Angleton out of the COINTELPRO picture. Well, let's take another look at back at the 1950s. There's a, there's a very small subplot in the book, which is probably not worth spending a great deal of time on, but it really struck me. You mentioned how Angleton befriended Jay Lovestone, a former Communist Labor Party leader. He got money from the CIA and, and contacts, and soon he and Angleton pretty much control what U.S. labor unions have to say about American foreign policy, which Absolutely. is something I think surprises people how much influence they gain by infiltration. Yes, and it's not a small subplot. It was It was a major part of of Angleton's empire was that he could count on the support of the AFL-CIO's, you know, foreign policy unit, the AFL-CIO's relations with any other labor unions around the world. And so the, the AFL-CIO became very much became the instrument of U.S. policy, completely unknown to its members. And this was driven by Angleton's close friendship with Jay Lovestone. When, Jay Lovestone lived in New York, but he came to Washington frequently in the 1950s. And when he did, he would spend the night at Angleton's house. He was friends with Angleton's kids. He was very close to Angleton, and this ensured CIA influence over the AFL-CIO. Well, in 1959, a young ex-Marine defects to the USSR. His name was Lee Harvey Oswald. Angleton's counterintelligence staff immediately gets involved in this matter. You note, and others have noted, that Oswald should have had a personnel file open on him as a defector. Instead, Angleton's Office of Security opens a rather more restricted file on him, and right up to the JFK assassination, Angleton was informed of Oswald's activity. This took you and others a great deal of effort to uncover, as this has been hidden for years, but it's quite a revelation. Yeah. I think this is probably the biggest and most important thing in the, in the ghost, is the story of the surveillance of Oswald from 1959 to 1963. The JFK assassination story is contested in every area and all that, but the paper trail shows very clearly, this is not a theory or open to interpretation, is the CIA was definitely paying close attention to Lee Harvey Oswald starting in October 1959 and continuing 
for the next four years. And when I say paying close attention to, we need to understand what this paper trail tells us, which is all information about this obscure young man, Lee Harvey Oswald, over the course of four years was funneled into one place, an office within the counterintelligence staff called the Special Investigations Group. So there was no failure to connect the dots on Oswald. All of the dots were in one place. They were in a file controlled by Angleton's staff. Over the course of four years, there was quite a bit of information in there, probably between 40 to 50 documents, FBI reports, CIA memoranda, CIA analysis, State Department, Office of Naval Intelligence, and newspaper clipping. And so wherever Oswald went in that time, the CIA was informed very quickly, where was he living, what was going on in his personal life, what was going on with his employment, what was going on with his politics, what was going on with his con possible contacts with foreigners. So the story that the American people were told on November 23rd, that this guy named Oswald came out of nowhere and shot the president, that is fundamentally and irrefutably a lie. Oswald was not unknown to top CIA operations officers, including James Angleton. To the contrary, he was very well known. So that's quite apart from any interpretation of was there a conspiracy or not. That's a fact that is very well established in the ghost. I'm glad to say that it's not being disputed by the people who read it, because the paper trail is so strong, is so clear that that was the case. Well, I have to, at this point, insert my, my single favorite quote from The Ghost, which was, if Oswald was a lone nut, as cliche would have it, he was the rare, isolated sociopath of interest to the CIA's counterintelligence staff. Absolutely, absolutely. This story that this guy came out of nowhere, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Now, it didn't make any sense to people at the time, because people thought, well, he defected to the Soviet Union, wouldn't the CIA be interested in that? And so the CIA sort of played dumb, and they got a pass from the press corps on this. Oh, yeah, he defected, but we didn't really know anything about him. No. <laughs> that is completely and absolutely false. And anybody who looks at the record now knows it. You know, you can just say what you want about the assassination after that, but what I'm saying about the surveillance of Oswald is a fact. We're speaking with author and investigative journalist Jefferson Morley about his fascinating new biography, The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. Let's take a short break.